Hey, welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have a great guest, and before we get into that, just wanted to let you guys know, of course, feel free to subscribe, to leave a comment, and if you enjoy this episode, let at least one friend know. All right, without further ado, our guest. Today I have Mark Andreas, who is a change maker, recently wrote the book, Waltzing with Wolverine. I guess I don't know if it was recent or not. Um, it recently came onto my radar, which is, which is probably, um, it's probably the book that most new therapists should read. Um, and I want to get into that in just a second. But before I do that, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, Mark. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. And um, yeah, excited to have the conversation. So I'm Mark Andreas. And just really brief intro on me. I have a personal change coaching private practice. So I work as a coach for individuals and families with uh, teens and work both in person and online. And so I meet with people locally and, and around the world as well. And then I also do some personal growth trainings uh, in the U.S. and other countries, but mostly the private practice. Okay. So, yeah, you know, um, I tend to get a little people, whenever I interview people like you, people end up saying the most interesting things. Um, and I have to just ask, I have to ask yeah. that question. You work via Skype or Zoom with families? I do, yeah. So it obviously depends on the family. It has to be a family where they are civil enough that they're all able to sit in front of one screen together. <laughs> um, and so I can't say that I've actually done that. Um, I've done that a handful of times. Um, more often I work with the parents and the teenager doesn't necessarily have to be a part of it because a lot of what we're going to be talking about and what the book is about is tools and strategies for parents to use with their kids. Um, you know, a lot of parents come and they want to me to work with their kid and change their kid in some way, but their kid may not be interested at all. Right. And so I say, well, you know, you're the motivated party here. I can give you a lot more tools to be, you can be way more effective with your kid than I can uh, if I just teach you some of these tools because you're with them 24 seven, whereas I'd just be with them for an hour a week or so. Yeah. yeah and you mostly do stuff out of your book. Um, well, actually a whole wide range of stuff. So if I'm working with families for, um, you know, how do they kind of fix dynamics in the family with their teenagers, then it's the stuff out of the book. Uh, it might be combined with some of the NLP change tools if they're um, identifying an emotional response like blowing up with their kid or something like that that they want to shift. Yeah. Um, but mostly it would be kind of coaching them in how to implement the strategies in the book. And then a lot of my other clients are just um, unrelated to the book. It's more personal change and personal growth related stuff. Yeah. How do you... Um... What do you see is the, is the difference between working face-to-face -face and working virtually? I'm amazed how well it works, working virtually. I mean, I love, my preference is to work face-to-face. -face. Um, and I always tell people, you know, if you can, if you live locally, I highly recommend at least our first meeting be face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, 
as long as you've got a good connection, which is, you know, if that breaks down, then, then it's, you know, a different story. But I tell people, as long as you have a good internet connection, then my experience is that it generally works very well. Do you see any difference at all or is it just the same? I would say that it's mostly a personal thing. Like some people specifically want to, um, like it's important to them to meet in person. And so that seems to make more of a difference is the personal preference rather than the, the, the medium itself in my experience. You are blowing my mind right now. This has been a hot topic. The last, um, one of the previous episodes I had was with, a guy who's saying, look, this is the future. And the last interview I did was with a lady who did her dissertation on basically the digital future of uh, psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, and there are a few things that she's like, yeah, you know, we need to watch out for this, this, and this. But for a lot of people, um, and I, I hear this often, they say that it works just as well online. And as a therapist, loves face-to-face there's a part of me that hates that idea (laughs) yeah Yeah, totally man yeah and i this is also coming from a very experiential type of person too so i i much you know that's my preference as well as to um be in person and off the screen but it's i've been amazed how well it it works and it's the benefit of it is that I get to meet with people all over the world. So that's pretty incredible. That's what she was saying. Yeah. That's the thing of people who can never get access suddenly have, have access. Yeah. That's yeah. better than nothing. Yeah. If you, you know, and hearing you talk, it sounds like it's, it's almost as good as face to face. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, you know, probably really depends on people you know, as a therapist, you would want to be comfortable with that medium too, obviously. that That's probably the biggest difference. Yeah. Or what could make the big, biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, let's go back to the beginning, you know. So, um, as an opener, it's always good to get a, a picture. So how did you get into the world of change, work, and NLP, and all that stuff? Yeah, sure. So, um, so basically I grew up in a family that was teaching NLP. So, um, so my colleague, Connie Ray Andreas, she's also my mother. Um, and so, and my father, Steve Andreas, they both studied with John Grinder and Richard Bandler who started NLP. And, um, they were the first to hire John and Richard to teach uh, practitioner training, uh, and master practitioner training in NLP. So, um, uh, and they, they were the first to create a, a written manual of their teachings. So their initial teachings, they'd come, they'd do a seminar, and and there wasn't really a, a manual to go along with it. And so they created one, of, I think, the first practitioner and master practitioner manual in NLP, um, and also published a, their um, most widely known NLP books as well. Wow. So they... Um, and then at a certain point, they, they and, and many others kind of further developed the field too. So John and Richard started with a lot of really good material. And then my parents and others further developed other processes and uh, through modeling, modeling people who are successful at certain, um, certain changes and modeling that and learning how to teach other people, basically. 
Yeah. Um, so I kind of grew up in that environment and I didn't kind of grow up. I did grow up in that environment <laughs> um, and didn't necessarily think that I would get into, go into NLP. That was not uh, at all an assumption of mine growing up. I studied peace and global studies in college and then I worked at this wilderness therapy uh, company for a couple of years that the book is, uh, the book Waltzing with Wolverines is about. And then after that, I started um, thinking, you know, maybe I want to be, I want to do this also, this NLP stuff. Um, I've always been inspired by, uh, by change, whether that's, you know, peace and global studies is, is looking more a macro or a group level kind of change. And um, my first book, Sweet Fruit from the Bitter Tree, is, is all stories of conflicts that people found unusual resolutions to, interpersonal conflicts. And in a sense, change work, NLP, therapy, coaching, that's all about the same kind of thing, but on the internal level. Yeah. Or sometimes it's interpersonal, obviously, if we're working with families or couples or something like that. Um, it's very much interpersonal. Uh, but even just on an individual level, that's, it's the same kind of process is happening just within a person as opposed to between people. So I've always been fascinated by that. And so I, at a certain point, I realized this is really a passion of mine. And I'm in a unique position here to get to learn a lot from mentoring from my parents as well as as the different connections that they have and it i'd be silly not to take advantage of it yeah man when you were growing up were you around it a lot you know there are people who you know are the sons and daughters of authors who you know know that their parents do this but they like for most of us you're not necessarily involved in your parents job all the time right um, that's true so so were you involved in that growing up or were you sort of doing your own thing or they were very good about keeping business business. And if we had, if we were curious about something, then they'd be happy to share that sort of thing. But the, there was no pressure to, you know, they wouldn't just sort of regale us with endless <laughs> <laughs> business stories or, you know, um, so, and I think that was fundamental to me feeling really good about getting into it. Um, but they would, they would often have, really kind of you know some of the first those first inspirational change stories that are in the book um some of the first ones that i heard came from stories that they heard at trainings or from other participants and um so i was always fascinated by those stories and sometimes you know if i had if i was bummed out about something if you know my dad might say hey do you want to try something out and if i was in the mood too then he'd show me some stuff yeah um if not, then that that was cool too. So yeah. there was no pressure. I mean, that's, that sounds awesome. Like the best of both worlds, sort of like yeah, an open hand. If you want it, you can have it. And if not, you know, yeah, it's not for everyone at every moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, that's cool, man. I mean, I think the the question that comes up is like, I would, I would almost be a I don't know what the word is. I just have this like image of like, you know, you as a little kid trying not to be around Richard Bandler. It's like I can be intense <laughs> sometimes. It can be a little intense. 
<laughs> oh, man. Like, I'm just trying to eat my ice cream. Like, <laughs> change now. Or whatever. <laughs> like, all right, calm down. Yeah, you know, actually, I think um, I wasn't really around him. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't have any memories of it. And I think, um, I don't think, I don't know that he was particularly interested in kids. And, um, <laughs> probably not. And I don't think there were very many times, I don't know if I ever even met him as a kid, actually. Oh. I should ask, yeah, I should ask him once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Possibly as a small child in the yeah. back of one of his trainings or something, but I may—I don't think I ever met him. Yeah. Certainly not when I had working memory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then you went into reconciliation, you said global reconciliation studies? Uh, peace and global studies. Peace and so, global studies. So yeah. that also is fascinating because um, as a hobby of mine all throughout grad school, I was studying a lot of nonviolent resistance um, yeah. tactics of that. So what was yeah. that like to, to study that for you? It was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. And the school that I went to, Earlham College, it's one of the few schools where they actually have a full program um tenured faculty and a core curriculum and everything which is pretty pretty awesome because a lot of places it's sort of inter interdepartmental or cobbled together in right. some way yeah and it was they had fabulous teachers and yeah it was i, I thought it was amazing studying those nonviolent movements and and all kinds of stuff yeah and so how did you go from that into um working with the wilderness therapy program so I always had a love of of wilderness as well. So I grew up in the country um, and just always enjoyed hiking, backpacking, nature stuff. And then in, and then my college also had a really strong wilderness program. So I did that as a s incoming student, a month long wilderness program. And then um, it's also a unique program in that it's, it's completely led by other students of the college. So then several years later, I got trained to lead the program a couple of years for the incoming students for those years. So, um, so those are two passions of mine. And so I thought, how cool would it be to combine the two and be able to be out in the wilderness hiking and doing, you know, helping uh, with this change work and helping people negotiate relationships and work together and and uh, come to more peace for them within themselves and with other people. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you have a sense that a lot of your degree has lots of overlaps, at least in terms of themes, with what you're doing in these groups? Yeah, I would say it, I, I would say it de definitely did. Yeah. yeah, less in terms of you know some of the classes involve specific strategies like um like the negotiation class i took um more of them were you know studying the history of things and learning about um international law and you know stuff like that which is not quite as directly related to <laughs> working with people in the field but um but it's but it all kind of informs i think just understanding human beings and the kind of trouble that that we can get into and the kind of solutions that we can find and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Um, 
my my undergrad was in international studies. Nice. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons I got into counseling was I wanted to do what I saw people trying to do on an international level, on, a, on an interpersonal level. Nice. And it sounds like for you, there were some of the same, um, some of that same energy, right? Wanting yeah, to look at peace and how we can relate better to each other, um, whether it's on a global level or whether it's on an interpersonal level. Yeah, totally. That's really, really, really cool, man. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like we have a lot of parallels, actually. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so this book, Waltzing with, with Wolverines, um, <laughs> it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. I think this is going to sound really, really weird, but I think it's very wise today. It's written in such a way that you can almost read a chapter or a principle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's at in like a five minute period, you know? And so it's yeah. almost bite sized in a way, which I think that for our generation is makes it more accessible, but there's so much here that it doesn't feel trite. Um, fluffy doesn't feel um, it there's still a lot of substance mm -hmm. so how did you come to write the book well it was several years after having the experience of working in this program for two years um, and just for the for the listeners I'll just give a kind of and you know you've read the book obviously but just a outline of the program itself was uh, basically working with, it was a wilderness therapy program. And my job was to, I was actually leading a group of about six to eight kids. I had one other co-leader with me. So we were the ones there leading the backpacking trip. We were there 24 seven with the kids. So we weren't their official therapists. We were very much their unofficial counselors and therapists. Um, but their therapists would come in. So it would be a three week long expedition that would be um, with the kids and the therapists would meet with them at the beginning during the first week and then midway through the second two weeks. And the rest of the time they'd be with us. So we were really the ones on the ground 24 seven working with them when stuff come up, came up when arguments broke out in the group, facilitating their their kind of therapeutic goals for being there. And the reason- can I, can I slow you down for a second? Yeah, yeah. So how many hours of psychotherapy do they actually have? So the first of those three weeks was called family week where we were actually, we were still camping, but we were near uh, Georgetown, Colorado. So during the day we would come into Georgetown and they would do group therapy and, and family therapy for that whole first week. Okay. So there would be group sessions that involved all, all of the kids. There were two groups of eight kids. And then there were their individual family sessions. And I'm trying to remember, they might have had like one or two sessions, family sessions, as well as the group sessions in that first week. Okay. And then there would be the two-week expedition where we'd be away from Georgetown in the wilderness. And then we'd meet up with a therapist for a weekend during that time. And a lot of the way that that therapy was structured is that the, the, the whole group would be, it would be fishbowl style. So the whole group of eight kids would be 
participating, but the therapist would be working with one at a time in the middle on whatever their issue was. And that was actually a really um, powerful way of working because it allowed the other kids, it allowed the kids to really support each other and get a window into each other's experience and realize, okay, I'm not the only one that has a family that has, is struggling. And, um, it, it worked really well that way. <clears throat> and you hadn't done your, your NLP formal training at that point. At that point, I, I think I did my practitioner at some point in the middle of that. Yeah, it was some, some point in the middle of that, my first practitioner wow. training. And then it was after leaving the program that I did my official master practitioner. That's got to be yeah. fascinating because NLP is so much about breaking down the different, breaking down anything into you know many parts and seeing how the parts fit together and so yeah <laughs> being, you know, being able to sit in sessions and watch and see what people do which most therapists don't ever really get honestly yeah that's really a good point it was a yeah like definitely valuable for me and in the family sessions too in the first week they always wanted us to sit in on the sessions because then we would be you know we'd be informed about what the kids were working with when we went out in the field with them so as much as possible, we'd sit in with, with the sessions of the kids that we were working with. So it was a, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a fabulous opportunity to see multiple different therapists working and yeah. <laughs> that sounds, I mean, I'm sure that there were plenty of times where you had paperwork to do or whatever, but that does sound like it was just, oh man, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. And I think that was a lot of my draw to, to doing this kind of work too, was to like, I wanted to get in there and just like see some stuff and, and a wilderness therapy program where most of the kids are forced to be there, they're not there on their own choice, which is certainly not the optimal. Um, But basically the structure of the program is it's for families where they're kind of um, as a last resort, they're going, I don't know what, what, you know, what I can do to keep my son safe or my daughter safe. And so, I'm going to drive them up into the mountains and turn them over to you guys. Or sometimes people from the program actually came and, and woke kids up and said, Hey, you're coming with us. Yeah. 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 I think, I think one of the reasons why this is such a powerful book for new therapists is because most of us, when we get out, I'll speak for myself. (coughs) Actually, this is, this is very, very true of people I've talked to in the field. We get out and we think, oh, I have a master's degree. I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. And then 99% of the time, we get jobs like that, you know, where we're entry-level people. We're having to um, learn the ropes. But what we've been taught in a lot of classes is theory. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of what this book does is it, it equips people with different tools on how to handle situations. And a lot of what people do, especially intra-level people, is either in-home therapy of some sort or some sort of residential program. Um, And when you're doing that, and I found this out because I did in-home and then I did a residential program, your skills as a therapist don't necessarily transfer over. um, Because it's, it's just, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's, 
it often runs parallel, but it's a different thing to have to manage a group of people for an extended period of time rather mm-hmm. than doing psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about the book now, what parts of it do you feel like people have resonated, resonated with the most? What were principles? What what, what stories? Um, you know, I don't know that I've gotten that much specifics from people, but one thing that has definitely been clear is that the people who are the most, in, there's a certain group of people who are the most enthusiastic about it. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from a wide range of people, but the people who are like, oh my God, where, where was this book when I first uh, started out in my job are teachers. Mm-hmm. And teachers have the same thing, right? You have the skill set of having to teach. You also have the skill set of having to manage a group of people. Which yeah, is exactly. Parallel skill set, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And usually, teacher. When I say teachers, usually high school or lower. Yeah. Um, not a college age teacher. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, you. It sounds like you like it too, but um, but the ones who are like, wow, I really needed this when I started out, are the middle school, high school teachers. And I think the reason for that is, and why this book resonates so completely with their experience is that they're in a position where mostly there's not a whole lot of training on how to do the group dynamics for teachers. They learn how to be an English teacher or math teacher, and they're excited to impart their knowledge and uh, to the group. And then they show up and kids are misbehaving or they're not, they're not, ready to learn yet and so then teachers are going wow what do i do here and then uh to make matters more difficult they don't really have any form of uh power in the situation to get kids to behave so they're they're in a unique a difficult situation because they don't really have much power at all other than i might give you a bad grade which only works for a small percentage of kids anyways um and so they're in a position where they don't really have much power uh, to control the group and they don't have really training in, in how to facilitate the groups. And so then that can be a really frustrating thing when they're uh, spending the whole time trying to manage a group that they haven't been trained to do and they can't get to their teaching. And the Waltzing with Wolverines book is all about the, the tools that I found most effective in working with the wilderness group it's a similar kind of situation where these kids are forced into the program. Their parents are saying, Hey, you're, you're going to be in this program, whether you like it or not. So they're not psyched to be there. They're not on board uh, to begin with. And they're looking to push your buttons to kind of see how they can get away with stuff and how much um, room there is to just do whatever they want. And they're teenagers and, ultimately they're going to do what they want. There's no, you know, we, they didn't give us guns. So (laughs) the the teenagers are going to do what they're going to do. And so in that kind of a situation where you really don't have very much power, how can you effectively manage and and facilitate a group that's going to in a healthy way for them? So I think it very much parallels what teachers are often faced with is how do you manage a group when you don't really have power to kind of, um, or leverage to begin with? Yeah. 
Mm. You have to win kids over. Leverage. I think that's a much better way to talk about it. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, when you use that word, what do you mean by that word, leverage? Um, well, like, <clears throat> like, for example, um, something that the kids want that you have power over, basically. So a teacher doesn't really have much of any of that. And in the wilderness program, we did have one thing that, that was our main source of leverage, which was important, um, which was that if the, if the kids were cooperative and played by the rules and expectations, then they could earn overnight time with their families when their families would come in every third week. So that was, that was our one piece of leverage that we definitely milked for everything we could. <laughs> yeah, I think that but we were also like dealing with situations that in a lot of cases were much more extreme than at least what a lot of teachers face. I know some teachers face stuff just as extreme or even more extreme depending on where they're teaching. But yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. And I think that leverage makes it makes part of the, Leverage makes part of the terrain very clear. Because I think that the reality is, for most of us, once a kid turns, I don't know, nine, mm -hmm. 12, even if we have all the power in the world over them, um, there's really only so much we can make them do. And I'm, I'm assuming that most of the parents of these kids had a lot of formal power over these kids. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even that really is limited, which is part of why those kids ended up in that, in that program, right? I mean, if mom yeah. and dad take away the car or the phone or whatever else, yeah, teenagers can still do whatever they want to do. And so yeah. power in the sense of, I can pull this lever and make you do this thing is a, a, a um, it's kind of a misnomer, but this idea yeah. of, of leverage, you know, and influence, um, I think is probably much more, what's the word appropriate because mm -hmm. all you can do in some ways is give and take away certain certain things and their decisions are still up to them yeah exactly and that actually gets to the prime um to me what is the the prime core of the book which is this um maybe i'll, I'll share a little bit of story of, of kind of how i came to that that um sort of the the central Ten, the central key to all of the tools in the book, um, which is that in my first experience training with the uh, the wilderness therapy program for my when I was training training for my job, they gave us various uh, child care tools, and and they were very generally very good, um, but there was one that I ended up modifying. In my my it may seem like a simple modification, but in my world it was actually very significant and and big modification so what we were initially taught was don't get into a power so in terms of power we were initially taught don't get into a power control battle um, with a student but if you do get into a power control battle win it and whenever i talk to groups or or, or tell people people always nod their heads and they're like yeah that totally makes sense and it made sense to me at first too um, 
So when I was on my second expedition with the kids, and I'm still a new leader, so I'm still feeling feeling it out and wondering, okay, when when am I going to be tested? My first group was pretty pretty. Um, uh, they had all been there quite a while, and so it was a really high functioning group. And so I go out on my second group, and so I still haven't really been tested as a leader, and I'm I'm not feeling fully secure in my position yet. And um, and I think, you know, a lot of parents and teachers can relate. <laughs> um, so we were at the end of the day, we'd hiked into this meadow and kids set up their tents. They each had their own tents. And some of the kids got working on the, the meal. They cooked a group meal together. And then the routine was that I would give a journal assignment to, to the kids, like a one or two page journal assignment each evening before dinner. And so I went around and I told them the journal assignment. And one of the girls said, I'm not doing it. And so being someone who loves food a lot, I figured, well, I'll just, I'll just say, well, you can have dinner as soon as you finish the assignment. Problem solved. You know, that would have worked for me. Um, <laughs> but apparently not everyone loves food as much as I do. And she said, fine, I won't eat dinner in that voice tone. So I'm going, oh, oh, here it is. Here's my first power battle. Yeah. And so I go, okay, well, I failed at, at, at the first part of the don't get in the battle. <laughs> here I am, I'm in it. So now I need to win it. That's what I was taught. And so I go, okay, I'm going to win it. So I said, well, if you don't do your assignment, I'm going to take away one of your overnights. There's these opportunities to go home, uh, and spend the night with her family at the end of the expedition. And so she said, fine, take it away. <laughs> and so I was like, oh crap, this is not going well. And so I said, well, if you don't do your assignment, I'm gonna take away all of your overnights. And then I just left, cause that was all I had. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I felt really bad about it. Um, I mean, in some ways it was kind of a minor situation you might say, but it just felt all wrong. Like, and so I went back to my tent and I was just kind of praying that she would do the assignment so I wouldn't be forced to um, take away all three of her overnights, which really I had blown things way out of proportion. And, and, um, and you know, the whole reason that I got into this work was not so that I could, you know, boss kids around and, and, you know, like force them with my power over there over their overnights to do certain things like that just wasn't at all why I had gotten into this kind of work. And so thankfully she left, let me off the hook. She did the assignment, but <laughs> you did one of these. Yeah. I was like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> you don't know how close you were to winning <laughs> um, or to us both losing, I guess would have been really more accurate. And so uh, after that experience, that really got me thinking, because I was like, okay, I don't want to ever do that again. That was not fun um, and, and not nice. It wasn't uh, in alignment with my values, you know? And so I kind, of, I kind of vowed to myself, okay, I don't want to ever get into a power control battle again, ever. Um, and so, and then something when I, so I went on break and then came, for my next three-week shift, and when I came on to the sh the new shift, my um, 
my boss was updating me about the group that I was going to take over. And he said something that got me thinking even more. He said, the group's doing great. They've, uh, the leaders have the group totally under control and the group, it's like they think their leaders are gods. And I was like, that's a little weird. (laughs) Um, and you know, I could understand my boss being, being happy because you know, his job, I don't envy because he was in charge of hiring all of us and then being kind of responsible for, for other people doing a good job. So, so he got to sleep well at night because he knew that the group was cohesive. They were following their leaders and they were safe that way, but treating their leaders like gods, um, kind of a little bit weird. And, um, (laughs) And I had seen these other leaders work also, and their method of asserting control with the group was to get into power battles and win them. And they were very good at it. Um, But what was the larger goal in this whole program? So it worked for the immediate goal of having a cooperative group that stayed safe. But what was the larger goal? Did we want to teach kids to just follow blindly whoever the smartest strongest leader was or are we there to teach them how to think for themselves and you know participate and and um make their the choices that are right for them and so yeah so that really got me thinking even more about this this general tenant of don't get into a power battle but if you do win it and so i changed things to don't get into a power battle but if you do get into a power battle get back out of it And what I realized was there's no rule that says once you're in one, you have to stay in it. And a lot of people feel like once they start down that path, they have to just stick it out to the bitter end. (laughs) Um, You know, I can't lose face and admit that I was wrong or, you know, whatever it might be. And it turns out that that's just not true. Um, And so in a lot of ways, the, a lot of the tools in that book are, ways of once you, because everyone gets into them, um, but the, a lot of the tools are, once you realize you're getting into a power battle, how you can get back out of it without just seeing it through to the bitter end where you end up with a lose-lose situation or a situation where you may win, but it's at the cost of, of the other person's autonomy and kind of what's right for them. Yeah. And so what I ended up doing is in the future when somebody would refuse to do a journal assignment or whatever it might be. I suddenly had a lot more options of what I could do. So what I realized is that the whole purpose for me being there in that program was to be supportive of these kids. So if I ever found myself in a dynamic where I felt opposite to them, I would just step back out of that and join the the kid again in some form. So that might look like, um, you know, a kid saying, I'm not going to do the assignment. And, and I might just say, one thing I realized was that every sign of defiance is that underlying that is some need that's not being met. And so it's not like that they have something personal out for me, Mark Andreas, um, but there's some need. Screw you, Mark Andreas. Yeah, exactly. That's a degree in your wilderness experience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, which was especially clear to me working with these kids because I'd meet them and 10 minutes into the conversation, they'd be cussing me out or whatever it might be. Obviously, that was not about me. 
um, there was, you know, something Healing else going breathing, on. Breathing air. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so I'd say, oh, why, what is it you, you know, what's your objection to doing the assignment? And often it was something really simple. It was like, I'm thirsty and I need to get the drink of water first. Okay, great. Go, go purify some water, then do your assignment. Or it would be like, you know, I set my tent up on a route and it's really uncomfortable and I want to move it over. Okay, great. Do that, then, then do the assignment. Of course, it wasn't always that simple. Sometimes kids would just, um, am I allowed to cuss on this? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> they did a lot. So I'm not, normally I don't swear at all. Um, but in the program, some of the kids did a lot. And uh, so, you know, sometimes they'd be like, oh, this fucking program sucks. And, and so I would just exaggerate and do that even more. I'd be like, you think this fucking program sucks for you? Think about my position. You get to go home eventually. Like, this is fucking horrible for me. I have to come back here fucking week after week. And it's just insanity. And like, it's making me fucking angry. And I take my hat off and throw it on the ground and like pick up a rock and chuck it into a, into like the, the ditch nearby or something. And the kid would be like, whoa, <laughs> this is the guy who's in charge of us. <clears throat> and uh, so that was one way that I often employed to stay on their side, you know, just in a fun kind of way to um, kind of mirror the experience and just sort of step into their experience a bit. It was a way of kind of, um, yeah, mirroring their experience in a way that was fun for me. I got to like goof off and, and, and uh, it was kind of cathartic for myself. Um, so but it really, yeah, it was, it, it sort of shifted that whole dynamic. Um, yeah, go ahead. So what did you see at the end of this? And I know this is, I'm asking this question for a very specific purpose. On the back end, did your student, did your students, did your kids end up treating you like like gods as well or no more like um people that they respected yeah, yeah. so Would because you say it, that you had just as much influence over them as the other gods quote unquote yes yeah a different kind of influence though that was more in alignment with their needs and and actually meeting their needs as opposed to a more forceful kind of control type of influence like they were more voluntarily part of this rather than um we're going to go ahead and follow along with this because um if we don't we might get made fun of or um you know we might be outside the group or something like that um the other the the winning it kind of was almost more like a bullying type of strategy in, in a sense yeah. uh, not that those leaders were were bullies but it, it was this weird power thing where they were just kind of asserting their control over the group and then the group would go along with it as opposed to I'm going to win over your respect and we're going to do this together and have more of a democratic. So it was, it was really more of a democratic kind of group as opposed to an authoritarian one. Yeah. And your sense yeah. is that you were just as successful, but with less of the authoritarian sort of flavor. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, I got to say, I think that goes back to one of my, um, I don't even know what the word is, but something that I have wanted for a very long time. 
you mm. know, part of the reason why I was looking into nonviolent resistance yeah. um, when I was an undergrad was to find a way to resolve problems without um, the cycle of violence continuing. Totally. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would see, and you know, you'd, you'd read about the history of different places and, you know, I think the classic example, at least when I was in school was uh, Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Being colonized. Yeah. And then in order to overthrow the colonizers, you'd have to have these sort of strong men who would arise. Mm-hmm. That sets in cycle, that sets in motion a cycle where in order to, where that person eventually becomes um, corrupt. Yeah. And then another strong man must arise to overthrow that person. And yeah. Maintain yeah. power, and they and so there's this and there's this never-ending cycle of um, of oppression, of dominance, of violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And totally. in many ways, the the nonviolent resistance movement is trying to address the same issues, but in a way that long-term things are sustainable. Totally. It sounds yeah. very much like what you're talking about of how yeah. can I interact with these kids in a way that they don't leave here set up to uh, to obey the person who is uh who exerts the most force totally but in a way that evokes their own sort of skills and resources and then they voluntarily want to do the things that we all need to do to do to survive in society yeah absolutely yeah that's beautiful man yeah 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 and so you know like other times i might um you know, sometimes if they said, oh, I don't want to do this assignment or I don't want to do what you're saying, you know, it's, it's another tactic I could take that was also a different way of sort of joining with them is to go, oh, you don't have to do this assignment. You get to do this assignment. This is a privilege. And, you know, be careful the words that you write down because years from now, generation upon generation of Monarch students, that was the name of the program, of Monarch students will, shall read your words that you set forth in this sacred testimony today. And, you know, so just kind of having fun with it and, yeah. and playing with it and in a lot of different ways that showed that this, this isn't about me making you do anything. And, and I'm not even interested in that. Um, and of course, sometimes they would even, they would refuse after I would try some different things and they would still refuse. And I'd say, you know, that's fine, you know, I'm not here to make you do a journal assignment that you don't want to do. And if you don't want to do it, then, um, you know, that's between you and your therapist and you can talk to them about why you think it's a stupid assignment and why you did something else. Yeah. Um, And yeah. Or sometimes I'd even say, you know, write a two page journal assignment about why this journaling, why journaling is stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When you are teaching about this material and you're talking to teachers um, and for new therapists, how do you deal with not necessarily the therapist's own um, baggage getting triggered, mm-hmm. but, the ther- but the therapist or the teacher's ideas around power? Because it, what it sounds like is in order to effectively use these tools, you would have to also make a fundamental shift and how you think about power control yeah absolutely so how do you how do you deal with that in if i'm giving like a short talk or like i've worked with some schools i'd like to talk about the power of no control as sort of like a phrase to to sum up the, the so thing sounds very um 
Like a, yeah, like a Zen koan or something. <laughs> the power of no power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of like in um, I have this quote that I really like from from the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus, and he said, "There's only one way to happiness, and that is to cease worrying about things which are beyond the power of our will." So a lot of the time what people talk about as power really isn't power. It's them hoping that they have power and trying to pretend that they do and hoping other people will, will not realize that it's all just a facade. Um, and so a lot of the way teachers or parents, people who, who really don't have a lot of power, uh, attempt to have power is by uh, trying to just assert their power and hope people go along with it when they really ultimately don't have the power. It's, it's really, they're, they're banking on the student's willingness to go along. Um, and so actually, if we realize that we don't have power in those situations, then we're much more in tune with reality and we can actually be much more effective at doing the things that we actually do have power over, which is what words come out of my mouth, what behaviors I take and what actions I take. Yeah. So, so the power of no control is that kind of acknowledging where we really don't have power and then we can be effective at the, the few places in life where we might have some, maybe not power, but at least influence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and another, another quote that gets to the same kind of thing is uh, that I like, it's kind of a paraphrasing of a Tibetan saying, which is, if you have a problem you can do something about, you don't have a problem. But if you have a problem you can't do something about, you don't have a problem. Yeah. It's kind of that, that philosophy. Yeah. Um, but that said, that said, it's important to, you know, have the tools and, okay, that sounds nice, but how do I actually have the tools to, to be influential where I can or to make connections in the, most effective way possible given the situation and so that's where all the tools come in and i think that's why this is so um i think this is why it's such an important book you know so often i've seen people who have said what you said and then they lack the tools to show how that's done mm, yeah and then and then people end up following them and either getting burnt out because it's not working or they yeah. and become heck i'm just gonna go you know become a a god to these kids and force yeah. them to do what I need them to do because what else do I do? Yeah, um, totally. And so for me, this is, I mean, it's, it's really important because those of us who want that long-term results, right. Or people yeah. are invited into who they are and it's sustainable long-term. Um, we have to have tools. Yeah, totally. I'm glad you said that. The, the, the tools for aggression are very obvious. It seems like but the tools for peace um, aren't always yeah. as clear. Yeah, they're more subtle and more varied and more nuanced. And and uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you pointed that out because I think that's the other thing that a lot of parents and teachers struggle with is is the, the I think they feel like they're caught between a rock and a hard place where either they assert authority over the group and and deal with the consequences and problems of that, or they feel like if they don't do that, they have to just sort of let the group run wild and, and, you know, it's just anarchy or something. 
or with parenting, often you'll see the, the flip side of being the authoritarian parent is just being the parent that sort of lets their kids do whatever they want. And there's really no healthy boundaries for safety and, and, and the rest of it. And so, and I think then, then a lot of times, you know, yeah, parents are going back and forth between, okay, which of these do I go? Neither of them seems very optimal. Um, Whereas really the, with, with these tools that are in the book, my experience was that I was more effective with the group than I would have with either of the others in terms of um, both in terms of the benefits of both of those strategies, both in terms of the, uh, the obedience and cooperation within the group that I was able to foster. And also with, um, uh, with, you know, fostering their own independence and thinking for themselves and, and becoming effective, you know, citizens ultimately. Um, And it's, it's a, a nice illustration of that too, is when I was first hired for the program, my boss you know, I, I really give him a lot of credit for hiring me because initially he thought this guy is not going to hold up under the pressure of these groups. Like he's too nice, too kind of soft spoken, like they're going to just eat him alive. Um, now, I didn't know this until um, it was two years later when I when I decided to move on to something else. And and my boss gave me a big hug and he, he told me this. He's like, you know, I'm really going to miss you because when you were out in the field, I knew, like, I could sleep well. I knew that the group was handled. And he said, you know, when I first hired you, I thought the kids were going to eat you alive because you seemed just like such a nice, kind person. I was like, how could this, you know, I don't think he's going to last very long, but I gave you a shot at it and you definitely proved me wrong. And so I think that's the, the key is is how can you be kind and and caring and paying attention to others needs and at the same time have really clear boundaries and every um expectation or rule that you set you're going to enforce it and um so that it's not either end of that spectrum of being either highly authoritarian or just like oh whatever (laughs) you know Oh, you're running around threatening to kill someone with a knife. Oh, okay. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. So that's what, what the book really is about. And I, I put as many um, direct story examples in there too, to, to try to make it really obviously illustrated and easy to step in and see how these things work as opposed to just sort of the theory of it. So as much as kind of woven through all of those tools, there are lots of different, just a story examples of, of me working with things that came up in the groups. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one more question before I move on to, to something else. Yeah. Do you, have, do you have a favorite tool? Yeah, I would say probably meeting needs would be the first one. It's just the one that I already mentioned about um, about any, any defiance is really an expression of a need not being met. And so a lot of times kids aren't going to be consciously aware of that need. They're not going to be able to say, Hey, Mark, I just realized I have a need for blah, 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 blah. And I'm wondering if you could satisfy that. 
you know, but it's going to come out as like, hell no, I'm not going to do that. And to realize, okay, that's not a, not a, that's not a, a threat to my authority. That's actually an unexpressed need. And to drill in and to sidestep the, the, the battle that you could get into and realize, oh, there's some need here and, and going, oh, hey, what are you needing right now? I would say, I see that, I yeah. see that with my, with, with, with my son. Mm. I'm sure you'll see this soon as well. Yeah, um, totally. He's, he's almost one. Uh-huh. And we're teaching him sign, like baby, you know, a few yeah. signs. Yeah. And when he, can, when he can't say what his need is and we can't meet it, yeah. he does like, it's not bad, but he'll like start to cry and start to sort of flail. Yeah. Um, for the for, for the few signs that we've taught him, when he's able to say, "Oh, I need this right now," yeah, meet that need. We don't have problems, and it sounds like a very um, close parallel. Yeah, right? totally. And yeah. I actually, I have a friend who she says that that's the biggest issue between her her oldest and her youngest. Mm. That her oldest didn't speak to he was like three for some mm. reason, mm-hmm. um, but the the first the second was able to speak a lot earlier. And they uh, maybe signs with yeah. him. And she's like, I think that's why my oldest had a lot of trouble and had tantrums constantly. Because he mm. couldn't express what was going on. Yeah. He couldn't get that, that need met. Yeah. So his only recourse is, is just the flail. I'm like, I I'm in yeah. pain. I need something and I can't even talk about it. Right. Make a big enough expression and hopefully somebody will figure out what's hopefully needed somebody there. will will run through you know is he yeah <laughs> exactly they'll start running through something totally totally yeah. Yeah. yeah another favorite tool is and this is one we were taught in the in the program is if it ain't fun you ain't doing it right <laughs> i like that one a lot which is just a reminder that with whatever you're doing to have fun with it and if you're having fun, even if the kids aren't having fun yet, if you're having fun, that's going to go a long way to, um, to them being at least, to them eventually being more happy and also to, to ensuring that you're not getting triggered and re- resentful and kind of, yeah. you know, feeding a negative loop. Yeah. I really enjoyed um, exaggeration. Yeah. It, yeah. it reminded me a lot. I read... Um, there's a book with John in um, Richard and Virginia Satir. She talks uh-huh. about working with, working with families. Yeah. And they talk a lot about exaggerating and um, as a way to sort of, I don't know what the word is, but to, to cut things off and to show how they are absurd in a way that doesn't um, alienate people. Totally. Yeah. I think often kids were surprised to see that kind of reflected back to them. Like if I would start cussing up a storm or something. Um, And it's, yeah, it is a beautiful way. I think you put it perfectly. That's a beautiful way. They get a certain reflection back of what that looks like from the outside. And so they get to, it's a very easy way to actually teach them to kind of step out of it a little bit and go, oh, that's kind of what I look like right now. <laughs> Whereas before they were just caught up in it, you know? Yeah. Um, and in a way where you're joining them, it's kind of fun and ridiculous and, and, and you're not trying to prove anything and right. the, the, the learning just kind of happens. Yeah. Or at least there's the opportunity for it. Right. Yeah. So, so what are you doing now? 
you've you're done with monarch you're doing some change work what kind of work are you doing now so now i do i um i use a lot of the nlp tools i use if i'm working with parents or teachers around working with kids then mostly it's focused on helping people implement like usually i say read the read my book first and then let's do some coaching calls and i'll help you tailor these tools to your specific situation or help coach you and what are the ones that are going to be the most helpful first off. And, um, and I love doing that. Um, and then the other work that I do is personal change work with NLP tools and some um, tools that are kind of outgrowth methods from NLP. So that would be core transformation and wholeness work and uh, that were both developed by my mom, Connie Ray. Andreas, and then also the Transforming Yourself model my father Steve developed, and, um, and also the, um, the Metaphors of Movement model, which is developed by Andrew T. Austin in the UK, which I'll, my next uh, training in Boulder is going to be on that, the Metaphors of Movement method. The Metaphor of Movement stuff looks really interesting. Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, it's fascinating and it's a lot of fun too. Um, and one of the things, I think one of the big, um, well, in a nutshell, what it is, is it's about eliciting our unconscious metaphors for our problems or stuck states um, and using that understanding to gain insights into perhaps why our current attempted solutions aren't working and what might actually work better. So whereas a lot of previous metaphor work is about crafting some story that is going to relate to somebody's experience or, or bring them from a problem state to a solution, to possible solutions, the metaphors of movement work is about eliciting, eliciting our unconscious metaphors that we always already have for, for our problems and then going from there. And so a couple metaphors I like to tell that kind of illustrate the usefulness of that is that in a lot of current um, you know, NLP or positive psychology um, or outcome-focused um, therapy, there's a lot of focus on the goal that we want and where we want to get to. And that's a lot better than where we started off, which was just focusing all on the problem. <laughs> and like, okay, now we really understand the problem, but what now? Um, <clears throat> but if we just focus on the outcome, then we're also missing a step, which is where are we starting? And so the metaphors of movement work in a way is a very beautiful way of accessing our experience for where are we starting? Um, Cause if we want to get somewhere different, we first have to know where we're starting. Like if I, if I um, want to get to Chicago, I can say, all right, great. I'll just go online. I'll buy a ticket to Chicago. Done. And then I show up in Denver International Airport and my ticket is from Philadelphia to Chicago. It's not going to help me out very well. So in a lot of ways, the metaphor work is about gaining an access to our experience of where we're starting. Uh, that's really key to, to um, understanding where that really is before we take steps to get somewhere different. Yeah. I love it. I love that idea. 
to me, it feels much closer to the client's experience than something that the therapist or the change maker, change worker is sort of imposing on, on, on the client. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially because it's working with metaphor, it's accessing more the experiential, the unconscious, the, the non-dominant hemisphere part of experience that often when people come in for a change, you know, they've already gone through the left brain problem solving, trying to figure it out or understand it. Um, and that hasn't worked yet because here they are. <laughs> um, and so often it's really the change needs to happen in a different part of experience. So it's really good in that way too. I like that. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating work. It's amazing. I'm just even, so I've been studying basically for, so, so Andy first began developing it in 2009 and we had him over to teach when he was just first, first kind of developing. It wasn't even a model really at that point um, through to where it is now. And and in working with people and over that time, I'm just constantly amazed by the, the, the precision by which these metaphors relate, relate and parallel to somebody's life and problem situation. It's just, it's kind of mind blowing actually how um, just how incredibly information dense these metaphors are and every aspect of it relates to yeah. something in their life. Yeah. And as the practitioner, I don't even need to know any of, of what their life situation is. I can respond to the metaphor and point things out about the metaphor that has them going, Oh my God, like, how did you, how do you know this kind of stuff? Just to, maybe I'll give it like a quick example yeah. if we have time. Absolutely. Um, so, <clears throat> um, so I was working with a woman who, where her metaphor, she came in and she said, you know, she said, it's like I'm, well, first she came in, she said, I know I'm creating this myself, but that conscious knowledge hadn't shifted it. And she was, it was high blood pressure and anxiety. And she said, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like I'm fighting. It's like I, I do all this work and then they change up the schedule on me and blah, 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 blah. And she goes into all of the, the content. And the, the, but there was that little me mini metaphor in there. It's like I'm fighting. So I ignored all of the rest of the, of the, of the communication. And I said, so it's like you're fighting. Like what? What's that like? And she's like, oh, yeah, it's just like, and, she, and then she, as she got more into that, the experience of what it was like, metaphorically, she said, no, you know, it's not actually like I was, it's not exactly like I'm fighting other people. It's more like I'm, uh, it's all I can do just to stay in one place. It's like I'm running on a treadmill. And so, I, okay, so it's like you're running on a treadmill. What kind of treadmill? And as she's going more into the, the experience of what it's like, she goes, well, actually, no, it's not a treadmill. It's like a um, it's like a wheel. It's like I'm inside a wheel and I'm running and I'm running really fast and it's all I can do just to stay where I am. And so, and she said, and there's wood shavings in the bottom of the wheel. <laughs> so you can probably imagine what kind of a wheel this is. Um, and so then the interesting thing is you can start to reflect back idioms that are 
that are um, that are true of that metaphor. So I said, well, it's clear that, oh, she also said she had things she was holding on on each side, but she was it was all she could do to just run staying in one place. So I started reflecting back some idioms and I said, well, you've got a handle on the situation. You know, she's literally holding something on each side. So you've got a handle on this, but you're, you're taking all of these steps and it's all you can do. It's a lot of energy and effort you're expending just to stay where you are. And she's like, yeah. And I said, and it's like you're looking forward to the same cycle, just repeating itself over and over and over again. And she's like, wait a second. No, I'm not. And I said, well, yeah, you are. Look, you're looking forward to the same cycle repeating itself. And she's like, oh my God, I don't like that, but that, I guess you're right. And so you, when you start just reflecting back these things, literally true of the metaphor, it starts paralleling over, um, especially if you can use culturally cultural idioms like that, um, paralleling over to their experience. And so, um, yeah, and so I said, you know, and it looks like you're in a bit of a rat race, or at least, at least, maybe not a rat race, but you know, definitely <laughs> looks like you look like a bit of a hamster, you know, just kind of. And then I said, you know, actually, you can under, you know, I wouldn't say this, but you can understand how somebody might say you're just somebody else's pet. Somebody that might look at you and say, oh yeah, you're just their pet, and you're like, ooh. I don't know if I like that very much, um, but it was resonating. And so then I said, so I, th so then I asked her, what, what is it that keeps this wheel going? And she said, I feel like it's some like um, machine or something outside the wheel, but I can't see out there. So I don't really know. I said, okay, well, do you have any other thoughts about what it might be? And she goes, well, I feel like maybe it's something hidden underneath those wood shavings at the bottom. And I said, I think it might be something hidden under those wood shavings too. And she said, but I just have no idea what it might be. And I said, well, I think the solution is you need to get a hamster. And, uh, and she said, because I was kind of surprised she wasn't picking up what was getting this moving yet. Um, and she goes, I've never actually seen a hamster. <laughs> and I was like, wow, are you serious? This is really amazing. <laughs> I've never seen a hamster. And, and so I said, well, that's your problem. You need to get a hamster. You need to get a hamster. But she didn't like that very much. And so. They almost never do. I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, if you, uh, do you have any other ideas about what might be keeping this thing moving? And she goes, she goes, no. And I said, well, I think I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you yet. And she said, well, I'm not going to pay you until you tell me. So I let her kind of think about it a little more. And then finally I said, well, I know that there's, there's one thing that I know is hidden beneath those wood shavings. And there's one thing that I know that you know is hitting, hidden beneath those wood shavings. And that's your own feet. And she slapped the side of her chair and she goes, oh my gosh, how did I not see that? <laughs> and I said, well, it's because the wood shavings were covering it up. Um, but, but it's so interesting that when she first came in, she said, I know I'm creating this myself. Mm. But she had a conscious mind understanding of that. And yet in the metaphor, 
she wasn't making that connection. And so she was keep, she was looking forward to the same cycle of repeating itself over and over again. And so, so I told her to close your eyes, notice what it's like in the experience. And I said, you know, some people, they don't know what step to take or the, there are too many steps to take or they don't know what the right way to go. Um, they don't know how to move forward or how to do what's right for them. Um, in your case, you're taking too many steps and you just need to take fewer steps. So just notice what happens when you begin to take fewer steps. And she, you know, you can see her visibly relaxing and calming. And she, when she initially came in, she had a pain in her back also that went away. And uh, interestingly, and she goes, wow, it's stopping. Like the wheel is stopping. And that was the, the session that we did. And interestingly, the next three weeks I checked in with her, her schedule had gotten even more because they were building up to something. So the schedule had gotten more crazy. There was more to do, but she actually uh, was feeling relaxed. Her anxiety was not an issue anymore. Her blood pressure came down and um, it, was, it, it, gave, it, it made that connection yeah. uh, that she needed to make that the conscious mind hadn't, hadn't, even though it understood the situation that she was creating herself, it somehow didn't, um, the connection wasn't made at the part of experience where it needed to happen. Yeah. Did you do any follow up activity with her? Like go and do this for the next week and a half or journal about this or do, or was it, or was that just the end of the. Um, so we did, we had worked on, um, so she was, it wasn't the first time I met with her. I had worked with her with, um, on anxiety and blood pressure before with other NLP tools and had had brought it, um, it had been dangerously high levels and none of the medication she was taking was working for it. And so we had gotten it to where she was, she was good to go. And then this sort of uh, busyness in this project she was working on had things had kind of come back again. Um, and so then we did that session and then it was, uh, that that resolved that and then we did continue to work on some other things um, and in so in our next session the way she described it was that after that session she she realized she could step off the wheel at any time and so she could just take a step to the right and just step off of it and so that's kind of interesting. Now, one thing I will just mention, because it's important, is that with this metaphor work, there's not nearly always such a simple solution. That was a situation where literally she was creating it herself. Um, she, you know, she said so when she came in, she was aware of that. And so it was unusual in that there was a very, a very simple s solution within her control. And so obviously there are a lot of situations in life that are not that simple and not necessarily within our control either. So it's not that every metaphor session we have find the, the one missing key and then everything just goes easily. Um, Cause life is, is not uh, like that a, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but regardless, it's a very useful way of connecting with 
kind of the truth of like, okay, this is where I'm starting. I wish I was starting somewhere else, but this is where it is. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. Cool, man. Well, look, where can people find out more about you? So my website is markandreas.com. And you can find out about my coaching and training there. And um, including this metaphors and movement training that I'll be teaching uh, in January, January, February of 2020. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, man, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Do you have any closing yeah. words or thoughts before we get off? I don't think so. I already used up both of my quotes. So. <laughs> uh, Look, should have man. saved one. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're doing important work. If I can help you at all in the future, let me know. Awesome. You are too. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Mark. I'll talk uh, to you later. <laughs>